Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Welcome those of you who are watching online. It's always a blessing to have you with us. Hope you had a good week this week. Everybody doing okay? All right. Praise the Lord. Good to see you. Let me give you a couple of announcements. Quite a few things happening here uh, in the life of Laurel Hill and across the world. Um, Youth gathering tonight, young people will be back in gear tonight. That's exciting, right? Okay, so at 6 o'clock we'll be back together. Uh, There is a business meeting right after this service today. We've been announcing that for several weeks now, and so um, that's uh, coming up just to discuss some upgrades at the church, some things that need to be considered as far as just keeping the building in um, good shape. And so if you can stick around for that, we'd love to have you. Uh, Also, uh, Amanda Drumheller, Shirley's daughter. Is getting married. Oh, and to Matt, wonderful young man, Matt Friedis, and uh, just a just precious couple together. And uh, they're getting married coming up. But there is a wedding shower this Saturday at 2 p.m. downstairs in the fellowship hall. Okay, if you can make that. And so I know that uh, they will greatly be encouraged by your presence. Uh, there is a walking crew that's happening now. Did you know that? Yeah, Brother Danny Vaya has uh, started along with, I think, Harry, where are you? Is Harry here? There he be. Okay, you guys, you and Mike, I guess, and uh, Susan with, was with you all on Friday, right? And uh, several others. So whomever wants to come or whoever wants to come, they're meeting on Fridays at 9 a.m. right here at the church. And I think you all started out, what, with 10 miles? Is that right here? Yeah. At least. At least. <laughs> Backwards, isn't it? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> No, but if you want to join them, it, I know it would be a great time of fellowship and um, even some prayer time possibly, right? So that's always good, and uh, that will be great for all, all people involved. Dinner and movie night coming up June the 18th. We've done some movie nights over the past, and uh, Thea wants to do another one, Thea and Neil. And so um, outdoor movie night, there you go, outdoor movie night and dinner. I think Thea's fixing ribeyes and prime rib. And all that stuff right there? No? Okay, maybe maybe hot tube steaks in the form of what they look like a hot dog, right? <laughs> but anyway, this is a great opportunity. Again, we mentioned this a lot, but the group has worked very hard on making the playground a success. And it really has been just that. But this will be another way to encourage the community to come. It's really being used all the time. It just in any given time during the week, it's being used by families in the community and uh, being well-known. So uh, this is another opportunity for us to fellowship, but also for uh, the community to come or encourage the community to come. Now, sadly, two points of announcements for you if you haven't heard this. I just got word this morning that uh, Jane Olson's sister-in-law, her brother's wife, passed away. Uh, She was just recently making plans to move down there to help care for her. She's been, uh, not Jane, but the sister-in-law has been ailing from uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, for quite a while now, and so uh, she has just passed away. So our heart goes out to our sister Jane. And then uh, just yesterday, too, yesterday morning, many of you all remember the Bibbs, Steve and Sherry Bibb. Uh, Orion and Logan were part of the church. Well, Sherry's mother was killed tragically in a car accident on Friday. And so uh, late Thursday night, early Friday morning, actually uh, Saturday, late Friday night, Saturday morning. So obviously their hearts are really hurting. I don't have any real information other than couple things. Uh, her mom was uh, tragically killed instantly on the scene. Uh, her father is in the hospital with a broken hip in Roanoke Memorial, and Logan, their son, uh, is uh, in kind of a bad way in Lynchburg. He's got a pretty good gash in his head, from what I understand, and a broken bone as well. I think it's an ankle. Sherry and Steve will have to correct me on that. But they reached out to us and just want to make sure that you prayed for them. You know, they were part of the church for quite a while, and uh, we'll give you information as we have that. Sherry and Steve moved to the Smith Mountain Lake area uh, to be close to her mom, uh, who evidently was a believer, according to Sherry. Talked to her late last night. And uh, anyway, her heart is very heavy, as you can imagine. Just uh, the, we're, we're know we're, We know we're to be prepared for death, but even in our humanness, it's, it's a shock when these kind of things happen. And so just pray that uh, God will make his grace abundant. He will, of course, but that the family will see it. So anyway, all right. And then finally, I don't know if you heard this or not, uh, but this is good news. This is really a landmark decision in California uh, about discrimination uh, concerning the COVID situation, but it really reaches further than that. This comes from Liberty Council, and Matt Staver 
uh, right out of their website and the news that came across just as of just a couple days ago that they have settled in California against Governor Newsom and uh, his illegal, evidently according to the courts, uh, command, what do you call it, uh, case against the, the churches of not being able to meet during the COVID time. But let me just read to you what comes out of the website, off the website from uh, Liberty Council. It says, Liberty Council has settled the lawsuit on behalf of Harvest Rock Church and against Governor Newsom. This full statement will be the first uh, settlement will be the first wide statewide permanent injunction in the country against COVID restrictions on churches and places of worship. Under the settlement, California may no longer impose discriminatory restrictions upon houses of worship. And the governor must also pay Liberty Council $1.35 million in reimbursement fees and costs. And so, again, I'm just reading the words off of the website. In other words, churches and places of worship may never again have discriminatory restrictions placed on them that are not equally applied to a long list of critical infrastructure or essential services as outlined in the Supreme Court precedents cited in the settlement agreement. And you can read all about that. It's all there. The legal documents are there for you to look at. But again, this is a, an unprecedented kind of thing as, uh, in my opinion, and I think this is accurate, that Satan has worked hard to point out and discriminate against churches. Uh, and I think the message has been, okay, we'll abide by the authorities, but just make it even and equal for everybody. And so uh, this is saying now that no state, no state, at least California right now, can have any discrimination against churches if it's not equally enforced among other uh, companies. And so it probably will pass on into the other states, I would assume, as time goes by, as states pick it up. So it's good news. You know, California has been really, really, the churches have been really struggling out there to just meet when other groups have been able to meet and, and do their own thing. So evidently the court system saw this as also valid and unfair and so imposed this. What's interesting to me is uh, as uh, I think Matt Staver was bringing this up is that just like God freed the Hebrews from the Egyptians, um, he also sent them out with uh, the gold of Egypt <laughs> and now is even requiring uh, Governor Newsom and the state to pay back these costs uh, that were incurred. So depending on where you stand on that argument, um, certainly we want freedom in the churches and we just want to be treated as fairly as possible. And so, and that should be the case with anybody. We live in a free country, right? And so people should have their rights. All right, so anyway, let's pray, and uh, we'll just rejoice over our God and what he has done for us. Father, we thank you for, uh, yes, who you are and what you have done for each of us who are in this room this morning and watching my line, online, but every believer across the world, and not only that, but even for the evil people of this world, you make your reign to fall on the just and the unjust. And so, Lord, you are a gracious, merciful God and you are just and righteous. And so we pray, Father, that as you make yourself known in the hearts of people in the church, that you would use us to make yourself known in the lives of people outside the church. Thank you, Lord, for settlements like this, not because anyone wants to poke or prod or rib, but because there needs to be justice if the laws call for that. And so thank you that we have a legal system that can do just that. And Lord, uh, we thank you above all that you are sovereignly in control of your church and you will never let the gates of hell prevail against it. And so Lord, we thank you for who you are and we worship you and we honor you this morning and we long to hear what you have to tell us today as you teach us again of who you are. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, I didn't plan this. I'd already developed all of this message, but it does fit, I think, well. The title, uh, we've been looking at Lord over various things. Last week was Lord over the elements. And I'm saying today that he is also Lord over sin. And praise his name for that. That's the title for today. So let's stand and read Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, as we look at the next section or the next segment of Jesus' life as Matthew gives it to us from what we heard last time. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to them, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? 
but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Praise the Lord. All right, you may be seated. It's been said, I've heard this in the past from some of you actually and and others in life, depending on what you read, that in the latter years of life, uh, people spend more on medical care than they do any other part of life. We'll call it kind of the third and fourth quarters of life. You know, the first quarter is typically from zero to 20 years of age. The next one's from 21 to 40, and then 41 to 60, and 61 to 80. That's kind of the quarters of life if you wanted to separate things. So you can kind of measure yourself what quarter you are in life. And the reality is just that, that a lot of people spend more on medical help and treatment in, in that later years of life than they do on anything else. And I'm not talking about just insurance. That certainly is the case. But I'm talking mostly about doctor's trips and hospital visits and all kinds of things. And that's because as we get older, what happens? We break down, right? We have breakdowns. And that just stands to reason, which requires a lot of attention from people who are in the medical field. And praise the Lord for those who are in the medical field. Amanda, we were just talking about it. She's a nurse now, and several of you work in the medical field and have, and praise the Lord that we live in a nation where we have such help like we do. So thank the Lord for you. And beyond those physical needs, we also have lots and lots of mental needs. There are many, many people that are struggling with their mental and emotional help. In fact, the counseling rooms are filled with people just like that. People who need someone to help them get past things. And and all of that's growing. In fact, if you talk to the counseling agency that uses the building here and uh, throughout the week, they'll tell you they're, they're hiring more people. They're needing more counselors because more and more people are coming looking for help. And praise the Lord, we have people who are godly that can help in that way and lead people through the scriptures and not just through their own earthly thinking. But all of that is because people need someone to help them whether it be physical or whether it be emotional or whatever it might be, in the hopes of getting some kind of advice for life or whatever it might be to help them in their challenges and getting through whatever things that they need to get through. But I think with all of that, and I could spend a lot of time talking about the statistics and all of this and that, but that's not really the point. The real point is that there is nothing more challenging in this life than the waywardness that comes from sin. There's absolutely nothing more devastating than sin. In fact, we could easily say that sin is the root problem of everything. Without question, it is the root problem of everything. It's sin that causes people to be so frantic that they can't talk straight, and I'm talking about whether literally or even figuratively, emotionally, so upset about relationships It's why our relationships go the way they go. It's why life goes the way it goes. It's whether whether we're talking about job issues or concerns about something else, or whether it's now or whether it's in the future. It doesn't matter. It's all predicated on the devastation of sin. It's sin that causes people even to consider taking their own lives. I mean, that's just how tragic it is, or harming themselves in some way, or coming from broken homes. It's what causes broken homes. what causes houses to be divided and everything else that breaks down and destroys is all a result of sin. But the point, or I should say so the point is, Jesus is coming is all about fixing the sin problem. And we should rejoice over that. He came specifically to forgive us of our sins so that you and I know how to live the happy, healthy life we really want to live. But we have to be able to meet him in a way that he wants us to meet him so that we can have that life, that life of peace. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? You do because you you get up every day and you do what you do because you want a life of peace. And you know that it is sin that's keeping you from having all of that. Now, not necessarily your direct sin, but certainly sin in general. And Jesus came to do something about that. And in this passage today, if you're listening carefully, you see just that, that he came to fulfill his own desire, which is a praise to him also, and his ability to do what he's able to do. 
And that's enough to worship him. You know, we could stop right there, quite honestly, and just worship him for the rest of the time together through song and praise and prayer, thanking him for his desire to help us and his ability to help us. Now, if you're looking at this, uh, if your mind works this way in outline form, that's kind of how mine has developed over the years when I'm studying scripture, is I look for key things and develop an outline, whether I mention it or not. I'll mention it today so you have some path to follow. And that would be four points, which would be mainly we're going to see faith in action. Okay, that's number one. We're going to see faith rewarded, and God always rewards faith. We're also going to see faith rejected. And then finally we'll see faith that's created. Okay. So faith in action, faith rewarded, faith rejected, and faith created. Now, let's just talk about the context here for just a minute because it's always important. As you know now that as we've been studying through Jesus' journeys, he's now at the place where he's made himself public. He's no longer privately promoting who he is to his disciples only, those few that he's chosen so far. We're going to see others coming up soon. But now he is publicly displaying his power to heal people. And because of that, people are flocking to him. Can you imagine this morning if Jesus were to manifest himself physically in front of just you? Okay, just you. And he would ask you, dear sister, dear child, what can I do for you at this very moment? You would be just twisted all up in a knot over excitement over what the Lord would be wanting to do in your life alone. So now if you hear about someone like these people did that Jesus was able to accomplish in their lives and you had something similar going on or you knew somebody that was having an issue going on in their life, you would want to find him too. You would want to hear about everything that he has to say and go to him so he can do just what you're wanting him to do. And Matthew tells us that after Jesus cast the demon out of the man in the area of the Gergesenes or the Gadarenes or Gadara, that region where the city is, he comes back across the Sea of Galilee to what Matthew says is his own city. Now, I just think this is a pause point just for a moment so we're understanding what Matthew, what place Matthew's talking about. He's talking about, again, Capernaum. If you remember back in Matthew 4, Jesus has said earlier that Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth And he's made his way to Capernaum. And there were some reasons for that that we'll get to eventually in the gospel. But uh, just understand that it's because he's left now Nazareth. He is now considering his home to be Capernaum. So he's doing the zigzag kind of thing across the lake. He's gone to the other side. Now he's made his way back over. And Mark chapter 2 helps us to understand a couple other things. He probably, more than likely, he was living with Peter and his wife and family uh, there in Capernaum. And and just basically became a live-in there as a result of that, because we're told from himself that he had no place to lay his own head or a place to call his own. He had places to sleep, certainly, but no place to call his own. And so now, just so you're clear on what's happening, that's where he is, as he says he's back in his own city. Now let's talk about the faith in action here, because this is the very first part of this in verse 2. And Mark's gospel tells us that it's just a few short days after being back in Capernaum. And he says that in verse 1 of his chapter of his gospel, chapter 2. But Matthew just simply says, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So within these few days, the people... Somehow, I'm sure it was through texting or Facebook or FaceTime or something, Jesus gets, they get the word that Jesus is back in Capernaum. And so they hear about it and they bring to him this man who's lying on a bed. And all of that is very significant to set the stage for what Jesus is about to do. Now, reading between the lines here a little bit, we have to kind of conclude with some thoughts that would say we don't know exactly what the man's problem was. God doesn't tell us that. We do know, according to Luke 5.18, that he was paralyzed. We're told here in Matthew's gospel that he was just simply a paralytic. Uh, Mark says something very similar. to I think he even uses the word uh, paralytic. But what we do know is that this man was evidently a paraplegic. Maybe he was a quadriplegic. We don't know. There was some paralysis about him keeping him from living the life that he really wanted to live, which is why he was on this bed. He is that kind of person. 
Whatever it was that afflicted him, it was so severe, evidently, that he couldn't make himself to Jesus and where Jesus was. So Matthew tells us they brought him to Jesus. That's all Matthew says. Doesn't give us an indication on who this they is. So we go to Mark's gospel in Mark 2, 3. And Mark tells us that he was carried by four men. Okay, now... That's significant just simply because, as I've often said, we've got to be careful about what we see and what we hear. Conversely, in the Chosen series, we see that there was a woman that was greatly involved. If you've watched the series, you know what I'm talking about, uh, who was the impetus to get this man to Jesus. Maybe there was a woman involved, maybe not. What we see here, though, specifically from the Gospel accounts, is that there were four men who brought him to Jesus. Now, what we also don't know is who they were. We have no idea who these people were, assumedly. They were friends of this man. Uh, We don't know for how many years. We don't know how he got to be friends with them. We don't know if they were childhood friends. We don't know any of that kind of thing, whether he paid them to carry him around, whether they were hired by him. We just don't know. Uh, We don't know how much money was spent on this life of this man. You think about your life and the things that you've done for yourself medically, And even now, as I was saying, in the latter years of life for some of you, the the fourth quarter of life, how much money you have spent on doctors, we don't know anything about that man. What we do know is that they were at the end of their rope, evidently. And we'll talk about that kind of literally and figuratively, but not so much literally, but emotionally, they must have been just absolutely at the end of everything they knew to do to try to help their friend. And so when they hear of Jesus... And all that he's able to do, all the stops are pulled out. All the stops are pulled back. They held nothing back to get to him. In fact, Matthew tells us that the crowd was so large, they physically couldn't get to Jesus. And just to show you a little bit about their desire to help their friend or whoever this relationship was to them, they were so determined to get to him, they didn't push their way through But they did the next thing, which most people would never really think about, and that is to get up on the roof and cut a hole in it, or the wording here is they would dismantle the roof and they would let this man down into the room right at Jesus' feet. Just imagine that scene in my mind for just a minute. Imagine we're sitting here and we're worshiping the Lord like this morning, and all of a sudden we hear a chainsaw start and pounding going on, And dust and drywall begin to fall. And suddenly we have the sky open to us and a mat comes down through with a person on it. And you'd say, well, certainly Pastor Bruce is not going to be able to do anything. And you'd be right about that. I'd be calling a doctor, right, because I couldn't do that. But that's not the case here. This is the Lord himself who is in the room. And just so you know, the picture in your mind would be something like this. It wasn't just a single level room. It would have been a double level house. That's the way most houses were built in the cities in those days. And so you've heard Jesus talk about the upper room or the gospels talk about the upper room. There was typically an upper room above the lower level where they typically would do their daily living. But upstairs would be like what we would call a living room or a great room or some banquet area, some area that they would have the the ability to serve other people with. And so Jesus was up there, and he was doing his teaching from that room. And so again, once they're up there, they literally take the roof apart, exposing this man to Jesus. And this is really a very powerful scene when you think about it, because as we think about this man's life, let's just take a moment here and examine how we have been through or what we've been through and what it would have been like for him at that moment. What would it be like for you in that moment? In other words, what would have to happen for Jesus to be so important that you would go to that kind of length to get to him? You think about it. These people were willing to literally destroy some property because Jesus was that critical to them in that moment. I would dare say that most people never give Jesus that kind of second thought. And I'm talking about even Christians, people who would rather or at least feel more powerfully to go back and retreat within themselves and figure out life on their own instead of doing everything that they can to seek the heart and the mind of the Lord. 
I think it's a great teaching message here, even just in this point, that as we examine the faith of this man and the faith of his friends, for all that we know, there was enough determination in their hearts to go through this incredible ordeal to get this man to the feet of Jesus. I just wonder how heavy your heart is this morning, how much you need a touch from the Lord, how much you need some something to be done, even for a friend or a co-worker or something, that you would go to such lengths to call upon the name of the Lord. It really is a very, very touching scene where the faith is just absolutely incredible. I think what makes this scene so much more emotional too is that, and we've talked about this before, but crippled people or people who were infirmed in some way or had some infirmity were often seen as people who were that way because of their sin or because of the sin of somebody else. And we see that particularly with Job. You remember his three friends who come to him and try to put the blame back on Job and and say, Job, you know, certainly there's some sin in your life. That's why all of these atrocities, these things have happened to you. And that was the thinking. That was the mindset. I mean, that makes sense from a, a human perspective, right? That this must be happening as a result. We always live with a cause and effect. There's nothing in life that doesn't, in our minds, enter in as a cause and then have some kind of effect from it. And so spiritually, people do this all the time. I'm this way because God is upset with me or I have sinned in some way and, or there's something bad that's happened because I did this. Maybe some people will live with that guilt from 30 years ago. And they'll say, because of that event, I'm living with this today. Well, there's a sense of rightness in that. There's a sense in which our sin does affect us that way. I mean, our physical ailments do come from something, which is we could all answer now by saying, yeah, sin, right? When I was talking to Sherry last night, and I know she won't mind me saying this, you know, Sherry's a, a precious lady, um, it's often tough, quite honestly, to know what to say to somebody in the midst of a situation like that. Uh, many people have even said to me, Pastor, what do you say when you're in a hospital room and somebody's dying or when you hear of tragedies like this. Well, the thing that brings me the most comfort is remembering that these things happen as a result of sin. I mean, that's really the point. But the problem is often people will take on something that God has no intention of them taking on. They'll take on some kind of stigma as a result of the way sinful life is. For example, people will think, well, I must be way overweight, for example, because of some sin in my life. Or maybe my body is like this because of something, or my facial features are this way because, and Satan just begins to hammer people with all of those things because of who they are. And he will point out the fact that, oh, you are like this because you are broken and messed up. You're the problem. And that becomes the philosophy and the ideology behind a lot of people's thinking. And again, counseling rooms are filled with people who are looking for someone to tell them how they can get past some stigma in their life. Just because they were a certain way or told to be a certain way, that they were just automatically assumed to be living their life that way. Just as a personal example, I've told, told many of you this before. I was sharing with the early service that uh, for much of my early life in college, I came out of that feeling very much like a failure as a student. I know the stigma of that. I know what it's like to fail out of a college. I know what it's like to carry the weight of that. And for many, many years, I carried the weight of, of the feeling of failure. And, and so it, it can be something that can be very devastating. But the Lord wants us to understand that that's not the way it is with him. Again, I was sharing with the early service just a little bit ago that I never forget my first class in uh, Virginia Tech. And this has nothing to do with Virginia Tech other than it was a secular school. And this would stand to reason as I tell you this. But the very first day of chemistry class in my sophomore year was about 500 students. And it was big amphitheater kind of thing and uh, I was nervous because uh, uh, I just didn't like school in the first place and uh, it was kind of overwhelming and so the professor walks in doesn't say hello doesn't say anything but this very first statement out of his mouth was my job is to fail you 
we want only the best. Well, he was very successful. He did his job well. He failed me. Well, I had something to do with that, right? But that resonated in my mind for years as this man said this, not even knowing me. I was just a figure up in the back side of the room. But the philosophy was there are certain people that are better than others, and those are the ones we want. Do you see? And our culture teaches us that. On and on and on and on it teaches us that. And so I lived with that for a lot of years, but it wasn't until after we were married and I went back to school after much trepidation, but I felt like the Lord was calling me to the ministry. And I never forget this. This is just how the Lord works. Going into class for the very first time as a husband now, as a father, and still feeling the weight of those kind of that that scene when you know you connect the dots. When you ever walk into a room and you smell a certain smell, and immediately you can be transported back to that moment when something happened and it's resurrected in your mind. Well, I'm walking in and I sit down in the classroom. And I'm just shaking in my boots and he's got all these young kids around me and they have no idea what's going on in my heart. The professor walks in. I kid you not, the first thing he says is, my job is to see you succeed in life. Now let's pray. Blown away. Absolutely blown away. The difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man. What I'm telling you this morning is, God is saying, I am not a person who is, I am not a God who is concerned about your abilities or your inabilities. I am God, and I can do whatever is needed to be done to make you the person that I want you to be, if you would just trust me. And what touches the heart of Jesus more than anything, if you want to touch somebody's heart, is the heart that's willing to let him do that, to be open to what he wants to do, to humble themselves to repent of our sin in our hearts, not just in our head, and believe by faith who he is and what he can do. That's what touches his heart. And everybody has to come to what I call the crisis of faith in their life. We've talked about this before. There has to be a moment in life where we come face to face with the living God. And God will assure that that happens with every soul. In his own way, in his own time, he will come to that person in some way and he will say to them, who do you say that I am? You must make a decision. You must make a choice. It's that crisis of faith moment where everything is against us and the Lord knows it and we come, he comes to us and he says, what are you going to do? I think that was the case here. It was the case with the tax collector. We've talked about him before in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you and I have done the same thing, haven't we? Lord, I sure am glad I don't live like a homeless person. Right? I'm so thankful that I don't have to be like that. Now, we never intend for it to sound evil, but somehow it comes out of our sinfulness when God is saying, hey, I don't want you to worry about that person. I want you to look at your own heart which is what the tax collector did in verse 13. Standing some distance away, oblivious to what was going on, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See the, 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 the word the there? The sinner. In other words, I'm the sinner in the room here, Lord. We could say to ourselves as we look across this room this morning and even online, Lord, I'm the sinner in here. It's me who is in need of the healing, right? But too often we think, oh boy, I sure am glad you preached this, Pastor, because some I got a friend that really needs to hear this. That's okay. That has its place. That's all right. Praise the Lord for that. But our real thought should be just this. And again, that's that's what's so touching about this. If you want the touch of the Lord's hand to touch your heart, you have to humble yourself. You have to come to the place of what we were just saying, admitting all these things. And when you come to that place, that's when you cry out for mercy and when he saves you. I think that was this guy. So let's keep going now. Faith is rewarded. So Jesus, now back in the verse here in Matthew's gospel, takes. he says, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, again, that must have been an overwhelming statement, overwhelming moment for this man. I can't imagine what thoughts were running through this guy's head. If you just think about it for a minute, after no telling how many years of agony, 
No telling how many years of the pain and the suffering and the believing that he was this way because of his own sin. The taking that to heart. Now listen, I can't tell you how powerful the human mind is to absorb the fault of the the situation. There are people who live in such bondage because they take to themselves that they are broken. Not in a healthy way. Not in a spiritual godly way. But they're broken so badly that they cannot see anything else but the, the violation of their own soul to the point where they'll do all kinds of things to get out of this life. But like many people who feel that way, this guy was wrong. He was wrong feeling that his sin was the problem and that that's what caused the condition. Now, conditions like this, Jesus basically, I think, is teaching us, are not a result of the person's sin. They can be, right? There are times where people can do things to themselves out of a sinful inclination that cause a problem. I don't know what the situation was the other night with the car crash. It was a head-on collision that killed Sherry's mom. Don't know anything about the other driver. We won't pass judgment in any way. But how many times have we heard sad, sad stories that it was a drunk driver who ended up taking the life of somebody who was just simply doing their own thing? I think I've told you about the guy that I went to high school with who was just a wild hair of a kid. He, his name was Buddy. And um, teachers couldn't tame him. Parents really didn't do anything to him or for him. And one night he decided at 3 in the morning he was going to drive his motorcycle 75 miles down the middle of Main Street, Alta Vista. And a dear woman was just coming out, leaving to go to the plant to work, and pulled out in the intersection. Nobody around. And all of a sudden this bullet hits her sideways and flips the car over, and instantly she's dead. And so was he, by the way. Sin. That was a direct result of a person's sin. But what the Lord is saying here is that it not necessarily is a result of a person's sin. It's not about that. And even if it were, that's not the issue here. The issue is the heart. That's what he's really most concerned about. So Jesus can take whatever's wrong, regardless of who was at fault, whether personally or not, and he can heal them. He can heal you. He can do it physically, and he can certainly do it spiritually if you let him. And so Jesus says to this man, take courage. You know what he's saying there? He's not saying, have a little courage, son. No, the man had tons of courage in that sense, didn't he? I mean, how many of you all would want to be let down through a roof by your friends holding the other end of the rope to Jesus? We'd be like, I think, let's, can we just go through the front door? Just go up there and say, excuse me, I need to get to Jesus. You know, I'm here, you know, sick man, sick man, whatever. And they'll let you in, right? No, okay, so it took a lot of courage. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, you have inner confidence now. Take courage, son. Be inwardly convinced. In other words, you'd have nothing any longer to be afraid of. There's nothing that you should feel sorrowful or remorseful about. What you think has been all the problem all along, I'm not concerned about that. What I'm concerned about is your faith right now. That's what the Lord is after. But this kind of courage is just that. It's that courage that comes as a result of being born again. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Take courage. Your life is changed. You are no longer bound to the pit of hell. You're no longer bound to the sinful tendencies and inclinations that have so guided you throughout life. Will they be a part of life? Yes, but you're no longer bound to it. This is why Paul could say we, when we die with Christ, we are crucified with him, right? We're no longer bound to sin. And that's the idea here. You're no longer under the judgment of God. So live freely and at peace. Because this man, what I'm trying to set the stage for you in your mind is to see that this man would have believed that he was under the condemnation of God and that's why he was this way. And here's the Lord saying to him, No, son, that's not the case. I love you. I've come to set you free. And I can't imagine any more glorious situation than that. This is not your home anymore. Everything has changed. Now, it's interesting that Mark and Luke don't add these words. And I just saw this recently, that Mark and Luke don't add these words that we just read in their account. 
Now, I don't think it wasn't that they didn't hear them, but it's that they're all writing from their own perspective. That's how the Spirit has worked through the writers. He uses their own perspective and what they're hearing to write down the same thing, but they just don't record it this way. But I have to wonder in my mind, and this is speculation on my part, but I have to wonder if Matthew, excuse me, in this case, who was the tax collector, right? You remember, tax collectors weren't very much liked by people. Talking about having a stigma in your heart. Maybe when he heard Jesus said to this man, take courage, Matthew lit up like a Christmas tree because he would have been that guy who we'll see soon. As he, Now, Matthew's writing this backwards. We haven't gotten to Matthew's calling yet, but we'll, we'll see that soon where he understands that God said to him also, yes, the culture hates you, Matthew, but I have work for you. I have use for you. And so I have to wonder if Matthew didn't just want to make sure that this was put down because, hey, that was me. The world had thrown me away. I was no use to anybody. But I have great use to God. And he wanted everybody to hear that. Other the Spirit of the Lord wanted us to hear that. And I just wonder about that in my own mind. Now, just as a side note here, And I think this is just good practice, and I just thought it would be good to give it to you. The Lord gives us a good pattern to follow when pointing out someone's need. Often we're very good, like a bull in a china shop, and we go to that person and say, here's what you need to do, right? Fix this, 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 and this. But the Lord very seldom ever deals with us that way. He often does first by, comes to us first by giving us encouragement, and then he gives the correction. This really is a great principle to think about. It's always best to follow the Lord's plan. And you see this in the text of Scripture right here. You see it when he deals with the churches in, in uh, Revelation. He gives to them the encouragement, like with Ephesus and Pergamum. I won't take the time to read those this morning. And then he comes along and he says, now, here's what I want you to correct. Just as a little bit of a side note, when we're dealing with one another and you're having issues with one another, it's a good practice to say, hey, let me tell you what I love about you. Here's what I'm so encouraged by. This is what you do so well. But here's some things that we need to talk about. Here's something that's bothering me. The Lord is so gracious in the way that he deals with his people. But let's go back to the text now because Jesus supports his whole directive here about taking courage by what he says here next. Your sins are forgiven. It would have been one thing for Jesus to say, take courage, son. Take courage. And we'd all go, yeah, take courage. But he comes along and he qualifies that. He's saying, because your sins are forgiven. Again, be in this man's mind for just a minute. That's what we're commanded to do, right? Love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Feel the hurts and the pains of others. So if you listen to what this man is feeling as the Lord says this, that word are forgiven, that's a word in Greek, is sent away or driven away or done away with. That's what Jesus is saying to the man. He would have understood this. It's the psalmist in Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. If this man is a, a follower of God, presumably he was a, a believer in, uh, in the Lord at least, right? Perhaps as a Hebrew, he would have understood that. If he hadn't, then... Uh, God was certainly teaching him something now. Micah 7:19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under his foot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's the prophet Micah. The Lord, beloved, is saying, listen, I as God can remove your sins from you. I can do that. And you and I are listening to this and we're going... How is it possible to live that kind of life? Well, it's not possible completely in a physical sense or in the sense where we're not trapped at times by our own demise and sin. But the Lord wants us to understand that when he saves us, we need to have a courage in him to face life the way we need to face it because he is in us now. Debbie and I were just listening to a a podcast yesterday by uh, Paul Tripp as a counselor, Christian counselor, and he said something really cool. I've always thought of putting on Christ as putting on like the coat, right? But he said, no, what the Spirit of God did is he unzipped us and got inside of us. 
I love that picture. And there's the confidence that comes from knowing that the Spirit of God lives in each of us so that we're not stymied to the point by the things of this life so that we can go on. And I could, this is why I could say to our sister last night, Sherry, listen, here's all I know, and that is sin reigns in this life, but we have a God who reigns over sin. Praise his name for that. Where do you find words to comfort somebody who's just heard that kind of news? Unless it's predicated upon what God has done, right? To be able to say to her, hey, you know what? I understand. I remember when my mom and dad died and the feelings that I had, it wasn't tragic like yours. But to be able to say that we just got to get through this gap of time and then we're together forever again. How do we have that confidence? That's the courage I'm talking about. That's what the Lord is saying here. Take courage. And notice what he says here now. Son. Oh, what a beautiful expression here. Son. What a term of endearment. Such a sensitive relationship. Such a a statement from a loving father. Now some fathers will say, now son, don't you do that. And I've heard that. I've done that myself. But in this sense, the Lord is saying, no, You are my child. You are my possession. I love you. You're precious to me. Just this weekend, we were down visiting our son Nathan and daughter-in-law Brittany and our grandkids, and Nathan and I took uh, Everett, who's four, fishing yesterday. It's always precious to be with the kids, and they're so funny. They just don't hold anything back. (laughs) They say exactly what's on their mind. And uh, so we took him fishing yesterday, and uh, before that, we were sitting out on the deck, and he, he looked at me, and he was asking a little bit about things that kids ask and, and, and whatnot, and the subject came up with, well, who is my mom and daddy? And so I told him, and I said, that was your great-great-grandmother uh, and father, and I showed him a picture and stuff like that, and, and then he says, well, well, who's your son? And I said, well, your daddy's my son, and he's like, it's like you just see the weird just went all over his face, right? He just he just couldn't handle that. It's like, yes, yeah, so your your daddy's my son, like your daddy's son. He's like, okay. I'm like, this is just getting too weird. I'm not sure, but because he's thinking in his mind, no, you're you're poppy, right? You can't be, dad. You know. Anyway, so it was just kind of interesting there. But how precious it is, you know. Debbie and I have a hard time not just. And I know you do this with your grandkids too and your kids, just holding them and you just kiss them. And, you know, our, our, our youngest granddaughter, Maren, you know, it's, it's hard not to just hold her and just kiss her. You know, baby's hair smells so good. And it's just wonderful, aren't they? And, 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 and it's just precious. And you just have to see God that way. If we can be that way, we didn't come up with it on our own. Our sin didn't teach us that, I can assure you. Our sin teaches us, kill the baby, right? That's what sin does. It's the spirit who says, look how precious this creation is when we have a right understanding of God. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are holy people to the Lord for God. Your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's what the Lord said to Israel. And God is saying to each of us, listen, when I save you, you are my possession." You belong to me, and nothing will ever change that. Why is that? Because you believed by faith. That's the key, right? Belief is always the key for salvation. Romans 10.10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Sadly, many people never have that understanding of their love from their father or their mother. Many of you this morning could not say that. You couldn't say that I understand what it's like to be a priceless and precious treasure to my parents because you didn't have that kind of relationship. Maybe this guy didn't either. We don't know. But whatever it is, the Lord is saying to you this morning and to me that you are my son. You are my daughter. You belong to me. Now be encouraged by that. Further, your sins are forgiven. And not only did he experience that from Jesus verbally, but now look at the let's keep going here in verse 6. So Jesus says to him right after that, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, there's not a pause 
between 6 and 7. But we probably could insert a pause there just a little bit. As the man gulped, at least took a couple breaths, and grabbed his bed and stood up because verse 7 says he did just that. He got up and he went home. You just wonder how much better could it get? Right? I mean, life is just getting better all the time for this guy. He's a man of faith. He comes by faith. He goes through all of the things that he can go through to get to Jesus. Maybe he even had to deal with some of his friends. I don't know. I was telling the early service this this morning. Again, speculation on my part, but there's usually always a negative person in the crowd. Right? There's always somebody that's like, well, well. Or there's somebody who's very tender and concerned who will say, you know, we probably shouldn't tear up the man's roof kind of thing. Uh, You know, we we shouldn't push our way through the crowd. I mean, I don't know. Again, this is all speculation. But the faith of the man evidently is what the Lord says, you are mine and you are born again and you will live the rest of your life healed and however normal looks to you. But you say, boy, what a wonderful story. Why isn't that me? How come I'm not healed in that way? I've been dealing with my afflictions for years Well, let's again not miss the point. Jesus didn't come to heal all of our afflictions physically here on earth, right? He came to heal us spiritually. He didn't come to fix all of the things that we have going on. But the spiritual gift is the greatest thing that he could ever give anybody. And there are people who understand this, who have lived with bitter afflictions through the remainder of their life, never being healed. By Jesus. Could he do that? Certainly, but that was not his point. He did this in the Gospels and it was written down for us so we would see who he is. I have an uncle that's like that. I've told you about my uncle Mickey, who um, for years as a Jewish man, he had no interest in the things of God. Yes, he went through the temple ceremonies at certain times of the year, throughout the years. Uh, he had his kids' bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, but never really had an interest in following God. My dad would witness to him all the time, and it wasn't until he got West Nile virus and lost all abilities of his body that the Lord really got his heart. And uh, to this day, he's in a facility, still can't manage his own life on his own, getting better, but can't manage. It's been a lot of years ago now, uh, but here's a perfect example of a man who now trusts Christ, but his body is not well. And so without God's intervention, that's the way it'll be. Now let's go on to the next group here. Faith rejected. As much as this man believed, not everybody believes. There were some folks in the crowd that still couldn't get it. Verse 3 tells us, Some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. Imagine being in the crowd and and, uh, hearing that. Well, you wouldn't have heard that because notice Matthew says, They said to themselves. Well, their real concern was, only God can forgive. So who is this guy? Right? And they were right about that according to Scripture. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7, 18 and 19 says something very similar to that. But what they failed to realize is just like the boys in the boat failed to realize is that God was the one that was standing right there with them in the middle of the room. They missed it. They missed him. Which is why he says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now what does that mean? That means just what it says it means. Right this very moment, God is listening in to the hearts of every one of us. Right this very moment. He knows every fractional thought that is occurring in your soul at every moment. There's nothing that he misses. And he proved that to these guys. That's why Matthew writes this. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He was proving his divinity by doing just that, number one. Only God can read the thoughts of a person. Now a spouse might be able to live with a person for a lot of years and say, I bet I can tell you what you're thinking. But they probably would hit around it, maybe hit on it sometimes. But the Lord penetrates right to the point and says to them, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? And they're just kind of standing off to the side, presumably. And again, through all that, he's proving that he reads the thoughts. 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
1 Kings 8.39, For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. 1 Chronicles 28.9, For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Every intention of the thought. Every intention of the thought. The Lord knows. If that weren't enough, then Jesus secondly proves his messiahship by healing the man. And then he throws this real issue out of the forgiving of sin. In effect saying, if you have seen my ability to heal, then you have to admit that only God can do that. And they would have had to have admit that because their logic said to them, sin is something only God can forgive. And also... A person who's in the condition this man is in is because of sin. So there's a double whammy in effect in their logical thinking, which was their illogical thinking, which was only God can forgive sins and only God can heal people. So Jesus turns around and he says what he does in the verse. He says, let me show you something. Do you think it's harder to forgive this or to ask the man to get up and walk? Well, guess what? I'm going to do both. And I'm going to prove to you that I am God in every way. And so their logic trapped them which is exactly what many people do. We could go on down the road of that, but we won't take the time to do that this morning. Except to say our world wants proof and everything. You're like that, I'm like that. But there are weird things that we trust without having it proven to us. But yet somehow we want God to prove himself more than he does. For example, you came in this, this afternoon, this morning, and you sat down in the chair and you didn't check the screws and the bolts. Right? I mean, I didn't see anybody with their toolbox out. Nobody came in with their, you know, their little monkey suit on and after being under the car, checking to make sure everything was all right before you left for church this morning, you just got in the car and you drove. Now, that doesn't mean you were stupid. You did what you knew to do. But strangely, people will hear all of this from the Lord, but they won't believe. God came and literally did these things. You say, how do you know that? Well, we know that because of what John says later in his letter of 1 John. Verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard audibly, we heard this, right? That's where input comes in so that we can give it back out. What we have seen with our eyes, here's the second sensory perception, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. So now there's a third thing here. We've got the hearing, the seeing, and the touch concerning the word of life. And John capitalizes that because he's talking about Jesus. And the life was manifested. In other words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is what he wrote in the gospel account in his chapter 1. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was of the Father and was manifested to us. In other words, listen, how do we know or how can you believe that this is true and accurate? Because we were with him. We saw this. And you need to believe it. But again, strangely, people will not believe. And that's, again, a result of the power of sin. Satan works hard to make people try to forget and not believe. I've literally had people say to me, if Jesus would only do this or do that, then I would believe. No, he wouldn't believe. Because God has given us everything that we need to believe. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. But for now, God says, listen, there's, there's none who's righteous, not, a, not one. Nobody wants the things of God. Nobody looks for the things of God. And maybe some of this is you. You think, well, I'm not such a bad person. I'm not such a, the person that people make me think I am. Or, you know, I'm pretty good. And we're looking at the guy around us and the lady around us and the people around us. And we're saying, there's no reason for God not to let me into heaven. And that's just not true because God has just said, there's none who seeks after me. Every, in fact, let me just go back and read what he says in Romans 3. All have turned aside, verse 12. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. I was kind of laughing with the first service this morning as I read that because I thought, could you imagine saying that to somebody? A four-year-old will say that. Coming up to you and say, you know what? Your sin is so wicked, you're like an open grave. That's what the Spirit's telling us. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. In other words, our tongues just always follow after the wrong things. 
And then he refers to us like the asp or the poison of asp. But a lot of people think, hey, I, I don't. I don't need all that. I can be righteous on my own. I can do what God needs me to do. I can, I can make it on my own, but that's just not true. I need more proof. Again, I've had people give me that kind of statement before. I've literally asked that. What would God have to do right now to prove to you that he is with you and he can do this? And, and there have been times where people have said, I, I need him to visibly come in my presence right now. And that would make the difference. You know what's sad about that? God says even that wouldn't work. And this is what I was mentioning a minute ago. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? That was the case there. Where Lazarus dies dies and goes to be with God in heaven, but the rich man who had a great life here, had everything that the world could afford, but didn't have time for God, finds himself in hell, and he's in torment in this flame, he says. And he gets concerned about his brothers, because God has said, there's no way for you to get out of there, basically. And he says, well, send somebody to my brothers, in verse 27, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But God says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And that certainly stands to reason, doesn't it? I mean, if we had some dead people resurrected right now, we would be like, wow. But the Lord says the power of sin is so blinding that that wouldn't even really work. They may be aroused for a while, but that's not going to do it. Because he says, look in this in verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know what God's saying? right here we have it everything we need to believe to follow God so what does that mean that means that we need to be people who in the midst of our difficulties the first thing we should always do is go to the word of the Lord and look for the answer what does God say what instruction has he given me what does he affirm what does he want me to change instead of going inward and crushing in on ourselves and trying to go ballistic and figure out everything that we can do on our own to make life work. But unfortunately, often God is the last place we go. But not for this guy. When he hears about Jesus, he goes to Jesus. And other people are affected. Look at the last part here, faith created. As a result of this, people were blown away. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. And glorified God who had given such authority to men. That word awestruck means filled with awe. And it wasn't that kind of, wow. But it was a reverential fear that God was doing something here. That's the idea. It's the same word we get the word phobia from. It was a healthy, sovereign fear of God. Now at this point they still didn't know who Jesus was, but... Something was stirring in them that terrified them so much that they were overwhelmed by the fact that someone far superior to them was in their presence. And that's the case in every situation in Scripture where this word is used. One writer wrote this. He said, reverential awe for God is a part of the truly repentant life, the chaste life, the holy life, the godly life. Mutual ministry, love, and respect, as well as powerful evangelism and proper church discipline are all grounded in reverential awe of the Lord. It is the substance out of which all right Christian worship, behavior, and service must come. I love that last sentence. Let me just read it again. It is the substance out of which all right Christian worship, behavior, and service must come. That is a great statement that in order for us to really understand what God is and who he is, we come to him with that kind of awe. We gather together to worship him. We're in such awe of him that he is glorified in that. Notice Matthew says, they glorified God who had given such authority 
to men. Mark says it this way in chapter 2.12. They were amazed and were glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Wow. Isn't that the way it was when you accepted Jesus in your heart? Man, I've never experienced anything like this before. This is life changing. This is life altering. My thinking is different. My feeling is different. My emotions, my reaction is different. Why? Because God has done something here. And you just can't deny it. You may not understand all of what God did, but you know by faith that God did something. And that was the case here. These people grew in their faith because the one who could do like no one else could ever do was in their presence and they couldn't deny it. Because he was God. And we have to imagine that this paralytic, when he got up his mat and he left, stood up and left, that his life was changed forever. Isn't that you? That when the Lord came to you in your most difficult moment and he showed you you were sinful and you said, Lord, I agree with that. I know that to be true. And he then said, now let me come into you And I'm going to make you all that I want you to be. And you said, yes, Lord, come into my heart and make me what you want me to be. Your mind began to change. Your thoughts began to change. Your pattern of life began to change. Why? Because you had been convinced that you were in the presence of someone like no one else. And that's accurate. Because there is no one like him. Amen? And that's why we worship him. He alone is worthy of our worship. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the joy of having a heart that's open to the truth. We didn't do it. Our friends didn't do it. Even the ones who led us to you didn't do it. You did it. And for that we worship you. Lord, you are worthy of being glorified. You are worthy of all the honor that we can give to you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are kind and gracious to accept us with all the baggage that we come with. Thank you, Lord, that you give to us eternal life no matter what our past was like, no matter what our current life is like. All you look for is a heart that's willing to be open to you. Thank you for the stories that were literal historical facts that proved to us just what John said. We can hear him, we can see him, we can touch him, and we know him to be real. And so, Lord, this morning we honor you as that one, and we give of our hearts fresh and new. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.